Thanks for joining us again here at Homeland, the podcast. And if you just found us, welcome. My name is Frank Foreman, and I'm the host of this podcast and chapter lead for the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security, Southern California Regional Alumni Chapter. Our mission is to bring you yesterday's pioneers, today's leaders, and tomorrow's visionaries within the realm of Homeland Security. This is the third episode in our three-part series looking into school shootings. In part one, we looked at the data collection platform, K-12 School Shooting Database. In the following episode, we discussed various stages related to policy and tactical considerations, and we delved into pre-hospital and hospital care strengths and areas for improvement. In this episode, I'm joined by Douglas Berglund and Jennifer Harper. Our conversation focuses on current efforts that have been identifying and offering prevention and preparedness solutions for schools and their districts to aid in developing their crisis or emergency operations plans. These programs aren't solely focused on an active shooter situation. Rather, they assist in identifying intervention points to help troubled youth before an incident occurs, solutions for reunification of children and parents following an incident, and strategies to provide mental health resources to schools, communities, and emergency responders. So, Let's welcome my guests, Jennifer Harper and Douglas Berglund. So welcome to the show. I want to introduce Jennifer Harper and Doug Berglund to our show on our third of the series for school shootings. And we originally discussed the K-12 school shooting database about data uh, that we can create policy and procedures for active shooters in schools. Then we, uh, our second episode, which discussed an actual school shooting, the EMS and preparation, planning and training and preparedness for that, and then up to and including within the hospital setting and some gaps that we identified. This episode's going to be a little different. What we want to talk about is the impact on the schools, the impact on the students, the families, and, and the overall community, and the recovery, and how long that may take. Maybe we could also look at some of the red flags or indicators of, of what we can do in advance to try to prevent some of this. Before we actually begin, Jennifer, why don't you go ahead and give a little intro about who you are, where you came from, and then afterwards, Doug, you just jump right in. And again, just relax and Tell us what's going on. Sure, great. Thanks. So Jennifer Harper, I'm the Assistant Director for New Hampshire Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Been in the position about four years, but with the agency about 28 years now. So came up through the organization over the years, was the assistant director for the Fugit States Fusion Center. I was our operations chief. I did training and exercises. So a little bit of this, a little bit of that, having great fun along the way. Like I said, been in this position for about four years. And a graduate of the master's program, 0803-0804. for Center for Homeland Defense and Security. Doug, what about you? I am also a graduate of the master's degree program here at CHDS, MPS. I was a member of the 1603-1604 cohort. I have just over 20 years experience in the the paid-on-call fire service. I recently retired as a deputy fire chief for my local city that I live in. But I also have about seven or eight years experience now as the emergency manager, director of emergency management for Washington County in Minnesota. It's the fifth largest county in Minnesota. So we're pretty busy there. And it was through this program that I had to determine what thesis that I wanted to write or what topic that I wanted to write about. And it was through that my position as the emergency management director 
that I realize that there's a gap, if you will, in the, the training that we do with all the public safety disciplines, police, fire, EMS, and schools. I realized through that that there was a gap in a focus on recovery. So that's where I chose to go with my thesis topic and specific to K through 12 schools. Wow, that's a, both of you, I think, are the perfect people to talk to about this topic. Before we actually talk about the impact to the community, um, why don't we talk about some indicators that are often overlooked or they're, they're recognized and maybe the person just keeps slipping through the cracks and no one actually takes time. But Jennifer, I know you've got a lot of information related to identification and programs that may be able to help that individual before we actually get a shooting type situation or any violent situation. Sure. So this past spring, Governor Sununu asked our agency to undertake a school preparedness, school safety preparedness task force. So we had 90 days to come up with a report, which we thought was going to be, you know, a white paper, a few pages, a couple of recommendations. And it's turned out to be this very nice report that has 76 pages and 59 recommendations and a lot of research that's gone along with it. One of the things that we came about finding was from the Department of Justice's Making Prevention a Reality Report, and it's called Disrupting the Pathway to Violence. One of the things Governor Sununu asked Director Perry Plummer to attend a session at a local high school, Scarlett Lewis was presenting on social-emotional learning. So Scarlett's son, Jesse, was killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting incident six years ago. So Scarlett talked about this social-emotional learning and how it is a program that's put into schools and basically made is for kids, students, teachers, parents to understand and manage emotions, set and achieve positive goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain positive relationships, and make responsible decisions. So this is a curriculum that schools can adapt I think 55 schools in New Hampshire have done that already. There's an online portion that does some training. It's a really great program that we feel is one of the pieces to the puzzle. Another piece to the puzzle is what we call disrupting the pathway to violence. That starts with school culture and how steps along the way, the pathway to violence are grievance, ideation, research and planning, preparation, breach, and attack. As a, I'll say, an assailant is going through this pathway, we want to be able to get them at the lowest level. So if we can get them at that grievance, you know, Bobby says to the teacher, oh, Susie is going to do something or Johnny's going to do something and to mitigate it at that lowest level. This is really sort of in line with the staircase to terrorism and some other models of how to stop somebody from becoming a violent extremist or an ideology or an action. You bet. You um, bet. I'm glad it's not reinventing the wheel and we're taking good information and, Definitely. and applying it across yeah. the board. Yeah, so as they, you know, go up in an escalation that, you know, we can have behavioral intervention teams there to help, you know, if they keep going, it's hardening of schools, things that we've done to help them to not 
breach the school. If they do get in, I think that goes to Doug's piece about reunification, recovery, and response. Yep. So it's that whole the whole pathway that we're that we've kind of found when we were doing our our report. Great. Doug, do you have anything on this? Yeah. My portion is really the next step. In the event that an incident does occur and behavioral specialists were not able to intervene and we have an incident, my focus began with a high school that had already done the response training multiple times. And the lockdown procedures and the public safety disciplines did the rapid extraction of viable victims and setting up the triage outside of the school. They were proficient at that and wanted to do, what's the next step? They had a location I already identified for relocating the students out of the affected building, but they didn't have anything else after that. So they brought me into an initial planning meeting, if you will, to start talking about those steps. And when I started to ask the questions, for example, how many kids are there? Well, there's 2,000 kids. So if this happens at 10 o'clock in the morning, and we have to evacuate the kids, and lunch period didn't exist for all those kids that are evacuating, we bring them to their location, in this instance was a church. Do you have a plan for feeding 2,000 kids at this church? And, And the answer was, well, no. And then my next question was, okay, those those students that are now evacuated that had prescriptions and medicine at the nurse's office, what is your plan for a diabetic example um, that needs their medication at the relocation site? What's your plan for that? Well, we'll just take uh, whatever's in the nurse's office and bring it with us. And I said, well, it now becomes a crime scene, so you can't remove anything from there. And so it, it just went on from there, the fact that their coats and backpacks cannot be removed, that their parents' cars that the students drove are now stuck at that school until the crime investigation is over. And the accountability for which students are even there. Does the church that you're going to have computer network capability to the district so that you can even understand who's there or who's supposed to be there? And so it was it was very quick in learning that they were not prepared. They weren't even prepared for the questions, let alone the answers. So that's when I realized if this school has a problem, maybe some other schools do. And, and I talked to the school resource center at the state of Minnesota through Homeland Security Emergency Management, and they agreed that this isn't just a Washington County problem, it's a statewide problem. And then my subsequent research that I did, I realized this is a national problem. There's many variables to go with it. There's no federal requirement for schools to have a crisis plan in place. There's recommendations from the Department of Education. And two-thirds of the states don't require it either. So there's lots of recommendations, but there's requirements for fire drills and lockdown, but there's no requirement that says you have to have a crisis or emergency operations plan. So the recommendations are out there, but the schools don't They don't speak the language, and that's not in their wheelhouse, if you will, to do emergency and crisis planning. So I think it's up to emergency management and police and fire that are responsible for those areas where the schools and districts are located to help them through it. Yeah, and your questions to them really identified some gaps that were existing. And so I know Jennifer is like bouncing up and down here and has, <laughs> has wants to respond. And so Jennifer. Yeah. So in New Hampshire, there was, we have now have a law that schools must submit on a yearly basis their emergency operations plans to the Department of Education. We at Homeland Security and Emergency Management get a copy of those plans. So those are on file. What we're hoping for in the budget 
that coming up that'll start July 1st is to have a full-time person available to go through those plans. So of course, some plans are going to be a couple pages, yep. some plans maybe 50 pages, some plans maybe 100 if they hired a contractor to write them. But we want to make sure that there's a template and you can have a crosswalk and be able to, you know, make sure that those plans are actually viable. Right. I'm not sure the word yet, but... They have um, utility. Yes, yes. So that if they need to implement those plans, that they know how, they've trained on them, they've exercised on them, they've gone to those reunifications, that they either, you know, have the... computer that they bring with them, that yep. they can get back into the network in the school, who's there, who's out sick today, et cetera. So it's really that, important. And that's exactly what the message that I'm trying to push. And, I, and I'm generalizing by saying, when I say they, I'm inferring all districts throughout the country. And, I'm, and I know that some, some are more progressive than others, but I've read some government accountability reports that show that, yes, some districts are submitting plans, but like you mentioned, they're two or three pages, and they, they have checklists for what to do if there's an intruder, what to do if there's a bomb threat, and things like that, but they don't address how to reunify or relocate, or what do we do in terms of an extended school closure because we're going to reconstruct some of the things that happened there, or even address how do we approach memorials and funerals and The biggest thing that I found through my research was, and a a surprise to me, was the mental health component to it. That is a big piece to the first responders, the students, the faculty, and the community. That was a big piece also, which I think you're familiar with that. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) We have several recommendations in our report on the the mental health piece. That is a huge piece. So so before we go towards the mental health, because I think that is mental health, not just of the students, as you mentioned, it's it's all the emergency responders, it's the community at large, it's the families. So going back to what you did mention about the reunification, and when they're relocating students, you have the relocation versus lockdown or lockdown, then relocation, and whatever system that's in place, that alone adds psychological effect to the kids, especially when it's hours upon hours of being there. Are the schools including, and you did mention when they're relocating them, did they include in there that they're now coordinating with the parents? Or was this just your questions went to them and it went straight from, hey, we're going to take them from lockdown and put them in the relocation. And that was the end. They thought that was the end of the game. Yeah, they didn't know how they were going to perform that connection with the parents and the student. They just thought that if they got them in one big area, that they could take them one at a time. So that process hadn't been written or fully understood, really, because like Jennifer mentioned, there was no training on it. There was never a walkthrough to determine what is this really going to look like, an examination of the footprint of that church and ingress and egress and where is social media going to stage and all those things hadn't even been looked at yet at that point. I was out at a school chatting with the principal and their management team, and we were talking about have they relocated to their, it was a church, and they said no, and one of the challenges is their path to get to the church is through some woods through a trail, and in the winter... It's got snow. Very so difficult how, to do when it's 20 below zero. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And coats and boots versus, you know, their sneakers or whatever they may have on at that time during the day. Yep. No jacket if they're at lunch or, or wherever. So lots of challenges with that. Lots of challenges. And in nearly all the cases that I've been involved with, we're looking at buses to relocate them to a facility to get them a little bit further away from the school. We don't want to be too far, but that's the reason is for the weather so that we can have warm buses that'll pick them up, 
take them away from that location and get them, you know, and then we have control of them too to have a supervisor, if you will, a faculty member aboard every bus. And then you have accountability. And then well. you, also, you can also assist with your accountability on the way from point A to point B. We can take attendance on that bus also. That opens up another issue for the districts because in the case of the high school, which is almost always the worst case because of the numbers of students, if you're going to use that amount of buses to relocate them, what does that do to the busing schedule throughout the district? So your plan has to be able to facilitate whether this happens at 7.30 in the morning or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So it can have trickle-down effect on the other junior highs and elementary schools throughout the district if you're going to take all of those buses out of service. And then that becomes a more of a regional coordination for at least within the school district, they're going to have to coordinate that Right. Yep. That's that's all part of the planning process. That's a problem that you'll be confronted with, but if it's in the plan, it's it's not going to be a deal breaker for us because we know what to do. Great. Now actually touching on the really tough part, because this could be a day for some people, it could be years for others. When we're talking about the emotional health of the students of the school, of the families of the community, what are some of the approaches that you guys found in your research or in your the uh, documentation of your 59? 59? 59. 59 findings, recommendations. What do you guys see as a, a, a good approach to address the resiliency of the community? I did six case studies for my thesis, and there was a wide breadth of how to approach this. So I'm not going to say that there's a right way or a wrong way. I think it's up to the district and the school administration and the parents. But I saw several things. Some schools chose to take one or two days off and get back into the school as early as possible to do that return to normalcy as we hear in, in emergency management. Others took a week or two weeks off to allow that time to attend funerals, get mental health counseling on their own. So it varied in which way they do it. The thing that I saw in one case that I really thought was forward thinking was they held an assembly, if you will, for parents, students, and faculty to come together in one room and the room was flooded with mental health counselors and it was a couple days afterwards but they also opened that up to the community and they did it off-site it didn't happen at the school or any part of the school district it was completely off-site that seemed to be real important in their healing process for everyone to ask those tough questions and get answers from from mental health people and i also saw a school that returned the first day but it was only for a half day the students all started in the classroom that they were in when the incident happened and so that way they can share that experience with the people that they were shoulder to shoulder with and talk openly about it but it was only a half day so they eased them back into it and then came back the second day with their parents with them to go through the school day with their parents so it really varied but it was important i think that your planning committee, your crisis team within your district talks about that and has those conversations. And at least if you know what the conversations are going to be, you're ahead of that power curve on how to react to it. So if you have multiple options, you're in that better shape if the incident ever occurs. In our report, I think we have like eight recommendations under mental health. So one of them was expanding that social-emotional learning uh, program in schools, doing age-appropriate outreach programs that kind of dispels that stigma with mental illness 
and what to do with somebody in crisis. I know that developing threat assessment task force within the community. So we had an incident at a school where a student made what was perceived to be a threat. The intervention team came together, chatted with that student, got that student into a mental health center, but got that person evaluated and was able to figure out that it really wasn't a perceived threat and was able to get that student back into the school. And it was a good success about how to intervene early and maybe things that were said weren't weren't really what they were when it came out to be that way. You know, there are some things that we have uh, in New Hampshire already that are working well. They need to be expanded more and promoted more. Increasing existing mental health uh, resources to like community mental health centers. It's an area that needs a change of culture. Right. And you know what, really, it sounds like by both of the descriptions each of you have given, it sounds like this is just the microcosm of the bigger community. And so the issues we find in normal communities every day, um, especially related to mental health, you see it just in the isolated to the confines of the school. So there are a lot of already programs that are are in existence, and obviously in a lot of areas we need a lot more work, but we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can just go ahead and look at the models that are working now and and adapt those to this environment. Yeah, and in many of the communities, the the school environment is the hub of that community, and when it suffers trauma, such as what we're talking about here, it can have a profound effect, a long-lasting effect, on people that might not even have family that goes to school. It, can, it has that big of an effect on it. And one of the important things that I learned in my research, too, is that it's really beneficial for schools to go out ahead of time in their planning process and identify mental health counselors that they will use and establish maybe a memorandum of understanding. In Minnesota, we have the Minnesota Disaster Behavioral Health Team. They're trauma counselors, and there's a difference. You know, when these events happen, they become national events immediately. And unfortunately, that can foster some people to want to come and help for various reasons, if you will. And there's a difference when a trauma mental health counselor shows up on scene and a marriage counselor shows up on scene and wants to help. And those types of things have happened it in the past. It gets back to our convergent volunteers. Every, yes. Everyone yeah, wants to help. Them, right? Yeah, yeah. Their intentions are, are, are generally good, but is that the best person that we want to have in that position? And that's so, a great question to ask when people do show up. And, and you want to make sure that it's right. That's correct. a very good point. Yep. How about we look at that? Your 59 points of recommendations, are those areas that can improve across the entire spectrum of preparedness for the schools and the they children? Are. So one thing that I'll say up front is that, and it's in big letters or words here on one of our pages, is that no single recommendation is going to resolve New Hampshire school safety concerns. However, putting the puzzle together and all those pieces together will help that. Right. And this goes back to just about anything. Everyone, it's not about a one size fits all. It's about the components that, that make the entire piece or your right. puzzle, for instance. Yeah. Somebody asked me earlier today when I was chatting about the report, well, what's your most important recommendation? I said all 59 are very important. I like that answer. Yeah. So there's not one that comes above another. We have legislative, mental health, planning, training, exercises, facilities upgrades, communications. They're all important in their own way. So we are trying to take a very positive approach, 
getting work groups together, very diverse groups to solve and move these recommendations forward and make things happen. And since this was the governor's directive and such a short timeline of 90 days, it's not getting stagnant. That's, no, it's so not. you're able to keep moving forward we are. quickly. We've hired a part-time person to oversee this. She's getting groups together. We meet with the key stakeholders in the governor's office on a monthly basis to report out on where we are with all of the recommendations, and the recommendations will get addressed. It's not going to be stagnant. That's great. Now, so the work you did, Doug, and the work that, that your whole team put together, Jennifer, do you guys share this information across the country? Is it available to other places? And are we helping our neighboring communities, helping our neighboring school districts? anywhere across the country. Is this information available? I think that that's getting better. As Jennifer was talking there, I was thinking about at home how school districts are now beginning to hire full-time emergency managers. And in the past, they've been tasked with, you're the community ed director, and and by the way, do this emergency planning for us also. And, and as we know, most districts are financially you know, strapped, and they don't have the means generally to hire full-time emergency managers. That seems to be the direction that it's going. It's moving slowly, but it's getting better. So the word is getting out, and I think by by in my field, in the emergency management field, by attending these conferences and in, involved in associations like the Association of Minnesota Emergency Managers and the International Association of Emergency Managers, it's getting out and school members are starting to come to those conferences. So that connection is being made. It's happening slowly, but it is it is happening. So yeah, we do want to share. And in our field, we never shy away from giving our plan away and showing you our process. And there's no there's no holding back or this is the way we do it. So, you know, we're good. We we want to share all that information as much as possible. So that, that helps facilitate. that. Yeah, I totally agree with Doug. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. If right. Somebody's done something really great. Yep. We're willing to take it and give everybody credit for whatever they've done. When Director Plummer goes out and chats at National, you know, National Emergency Management Association, he's also the Homeland Security Advisor. So when he goes to his HSA meetings, he talks about this plan. He is a, a advocate for it and pushes it. And it's you know on our website, people can search it, and we just share, 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 That's share. Excellent. So yeah, perfect. I, I think the whole subject here is such such a, an important one right now, especially how it's in media. So that's why we did the three-part series on school shootings. Now, active shooter outside of school shootings, that's a different situation, and that's why we really wanted to focus on the schools and the impact on the community. It's a place that we, we feel we're sending our children to be safe and then situations yep. like this occur. Is there anything that maybe, Jennifer or Doug, that you that we didn't touch upon that you want to touch upon? Read the report. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's a great report. Um, I think that one of the things that our governor, Sununu, and Director Plummer both say is that if we can't feel safe putting our kids on a school bus, then there's nothing else matters, that our children are number one, and anything that we can do to make them safer is, is number one. I agree 100%. And for me, it's just, it's all about the planning. And... If you don't have this robust plan in place, 
reach out to your local emergency manager, your fire chief, and your police chief, and find out how to go about it. There are really good recommendations and templates put out by the Department of Education, and I assume most states also have those recommendations. It's, it's basically a blank template that'll really get you down the path of, of making you know, this worst day a little bit easier to cope with all the hurdles that we've talked about here so for me it's just the the planning process and getting it out there yeah i would agree we do uh school planning workshops one day you don't have to have a plan to attend the workshop but we'll take you through the planning process um, and start writing it a little bit in the workshop then of course we go to training and exercises and it's just that continuous cycle like you said that's excellent yep that's 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 great what we want it's all about the process and the partnerships you build so um, i'm glad you both hit those if uh, somebody wanted to get a copy of either the information you guys are talking about do you have any way of for people to reach out to you and contact you Sure. So if they would like to reach out to New Hampshire Homeland Security and Emergency Management, they can find us on the website or they can call us at 603-271-2231. The report is on the governor's website and you can find that at newhampshire.gov. It's right on his homepage. And I think the, the best way is to just contact me directly and you can reach me through my email. It's douglas.berglund, B-E-R-G-L-U-N-D at co.washington.mn.us. So just shoot me an email, and if I have any planning materials that I can share with you or answer questions, or if you have something that you think I can use in terms of planning, I'd be happy to look at it and and use it. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I appreciate both of your times today and, and the insight that you were able to bring to our listeners. So thank you very much, Jennifer, and thank, thank you. you, Doug. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It. So there you have it, Douglas Berglund and Jennifer Harper. The research and programs each have been developing, implementing, and sharing address the well-being of our children both before and after a violent incident. It's hard to identify just one item as the most interesting from this conversation, so I'll cite two, early intervention and mental health resources. Early intervention and disrupting the pathway to violence is critical. It's always better to be prepared for tragic events but it's even better to not have them occur in the first place. The earlier an identification of a grievance or perceived grievance may be made, the greater the likelihood for success. The other item I found not just interesting, but critical is the increased focus on mental health following violent incidents. The effects may last months, years, and even a lifetime. Sadly, just a few weeks ago, Sydney Aiello took her life. If you're unaware of who she was, she was one of the survivors from the school shootings in Parkland, Florida at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental health issues must be addressed and building a robust network of mental health professionals and other resources is key for our children, our families, communities, and the emergency responders. If you'd like to get more information about the efforts you heard in this podcast from Jennifer Harper or Doug Berglund, or you'd like to take a look at the K-12 school shooting database, that information may be found in our show notes. And as always, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous, 
please share them with your friends and peers. If you would, also leave a review and subscribe. This way, each time we release an episode, it will be ready for you in iTunes or whichever platform you use for your podcasts. And with that, I'm Frank Foreman, your host. And until our next episode, take care. Take care.